Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I am your host for this ad space and the podcast. My name is Kevin Estella. I'm the director of training, the survival guy here at the company that tends to do a lot of weird stuff. Uh, Guys, I will tell you this. This podcast is one of my favorite things that I do at the company, and I will tell you that it is because of our great sponsors. Now, we have two that I want you to be very aware of um, because they're good friends and we are uh, very, very closely tied to them. The first one is Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, I am currently running on about four cups of Black Rifle Coffee. I tried to cut down to about two from three cups, but that didn't work. Uh, if anything, it made me drink more. Uh, Evan and the boys over in Salt Lake City, they've got a great operation. They are employing a whole bunch of veterans. They are doing some amazing things in our uh, outdoor space, our community. I carry Black Rifle Coffee with me every single day. I use their instant coffee in my day pack. I don't drink from the day pack, but I carry it there for when I'm traveling to hotels and you're left with that disgusting hotel coffee, which by the way, you should never, ever, ever use a hotel coffee machine that's in your hotel. They don't really clean those out. So I would recommend go downstairs, get yourself a cup of hot water from the free breakfast or whatever it is and carry your own coffee, carry Black Rifle Coffee. So. Shout out to those guys, great, great friends. They are making this podcast totally possible. The second advertiser, the second sponsor of this podcast, it's a firearms company you should know well, and that is Sig Sauer. Sig Sauer is located up in the great free state of New Hampshire. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the SIG Academy, but I'll tell you, it is always fun when you are driving from Connecticut, which is where I used to live, to New Hampshire through the occupied state of Massachusetts with a whole bunch of firearms. Um, you definitely, definitely drive a few miles per hour slower than the advertised speed limit, and you stay in the center lane and just stay with the flow of traffic. Uh, you don't want to get pulled over there. But I'm going to tell you this, uh, SIG quality, quality firearms, fantastic instructors up at the academy. I'm actually going to be there uh, later this spring, and I'm going to do a couple things uh, at the academy showing you, if you're traveling to the academy, how you do it, right? Where you can fly into, where you can stay, where you can eat, things like that. Guys, please check out the SIG Academy. Please check out SIG Firearms. Take a look at their 320 line and the 365 line. Uh, I just picked up a SIG MPX, maybe because I've got like John McClane fantasies here, right? I'm not fantasizing about John McClane, but the gear he carried. Uh, and even though he had a uh, HK MP5, I kind of like the MPX. So big, big shout out to our good friends over at SIG. So this podcast is brought to you both, uh, brought to you by SIG and Black Rifle Coffee, and I think you're gonna like it. It's featuring my good friend, uh, the chairman of Knife Rights, Doug Ritter, who he and I go back a long time, and he's got a lot of cool stories, some very interesting information that you're going to enjoy. So here we go. Doug Ritter, my my buddy from years and years ago. How are you, my friend? I am great, Kevin. What a how excited am I to be here with you? Very excited. We go, we go back a ways. Yeah. We go back I, ways. I, I just posted up a funny picture, which I don't know if that was you or I don't know if it was your wife who commented, uh, but it was from 2007. I definitely have no gray hair in that photo. So I, I'm definitely well, like a wee I, lad. I had a lot more hair, but it was covered <laughs> by a cat. So, <laughs> yeah. and, th and that was on the, the property of Terrell, Terrell Hoffman. Uh, I brought up his name in the past and I brought up the whole practice what you preach thing. I wish we could bring back those type of camping events and I want to through Fieldcraft where it's like you see a lot of people on social media talking about like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. Well, 
Terrell was really like a groundbreaker saying, if you think you can do that, practice what you preach. And that, that event was a blast. Um, uh, it was a wonderful event. Um, it went on for years and years. I've got, I've got patches from, I don't know, four or five years worth. Um, what was so good about that event was besides meeting some wonderful people in our community was the, the stuff you learned from others who had figured out solutions to things that you hadn't. And the fact that everyone came there with such an open mind yes, and wanting to learn from, you know, their peers and their betters in the community so that they were better prepared when they went out into the wilderness uh, than they were when they showed up. And that, that, that was so much fun. Um, I, I, yeah. We need more of that kind of thing. I agree. I, I love that sense of community. I like the idea of having uh, like a big trade blanket. And I tell people this and they're like, there's no way that happened. How you could show up there. And it was, you know, largely a knife testing weekend because it was so driven by the knife community. But you could leave all of your equipment in the open and not a single thing was ever taken. And we're talking there were thousands of dollars worth of, of knives and firearms and camera equipment. And if you left it there, it stayed there. No one touched it until you got back because yep. it was just such a, a great, great community event, man. So well, someday, maybe. Yeah. Someday. Um, <laughs> but before, before we met in 2007, my introduction to you, and I've brought this up on the, the coffee and survival kits, uh, podcast that I did. And I brought this up on the webinar that I did. It was 1999 and I was traveling to Boston. Uh, I was actually going with one of my sister's friends to a wedding. Uh, I was kind of like the date under glass. Right. And I was like, I'm like, ah, oh, let me just, you know, bring some reading material for the car or whatever. Cause I was like a third wheel, uh, with one of her friends too. So I'm, I printed out from my college dorm room. I printed out from your equipped to survive uh, foundation, all the uh, components that you had in that personal or a mini personal survival kit. And I was like, this guy's onto something because I had never seen anything like that where your kit was so compact, yet it covered some basic medical needs, some basic illumination needs, some fire needs. And even the way that you broke it down where you you broke it down into categories and then you rated the components in your your categories some people don't know this, but when I wrote my book and I broke things down categorically, I took inspiration from you. So I learned about you in 99, but your foundation was around since 96 and people don't realize like you were doing crazy research on gear and testing this out all non-profit, not for profit because you were like, I want people to be as prepared as possible. And I, I consider you one of the groundbreaking, you know, the pioneers in, in the outdoor industry. Um, but what, what spurred you on to, to creating Equipped to Survive? So at, at the time that I created Equipped to Survive, um, I was uh, working professionally as an aviation writer and, and writing for uh aviation consumer and aviation safety, neither of which accepted advertising as, as, as well as other aviation publications. And uh, for both those publications, um, I'll step back one point, one step. So the first 
article that I ever sold sold to somebody was to aviation consumer. It was about a aviation survival kit that I had built for my own use. And all of that stuff that you're talking about, the categories and the research that went into deciding what into the kit, because I might be just a little bit OCD, just a wee <laughs> bit. Um, I had done prior to that, you know, I had experience camping and backpacking and all that stuff from when I was younger. And so that was the start. And as I did more articles for aviation safety and aviation consumer focusing on the sort of uh, survival products that a pilot might need, whether it was as sophisticated as a life raft or emergency beacon or as simple as a knife, mm -hmm. um, I started I started getting a lot of words together that shortly after I started writing for Aviation Consumer, I made friends with uh, one of the finest Bush pilots ever, uh, Fred Potts. And Fred was um, Fred was unique. His idea of a personal computer was a spark station. Um, but he had one of the original 500.com websites. And he convinced me that I needed to get on the web. And that was really where Equipped to Survive came from originally. And, you know, he helped. Um, I bought the book HTML for Dummies. You know, the original website was all hand-coded <laughs> with a text editor. Um, but but the idea, as you say, was was basically to become the consumer reports for survival gear, um, which translates to a certain extent to consumer reports for outdoor gear. Um, no advertising, obviously, speaking my mind and and trying to make sure that when I discussed a particular item, whether it was fire starter knives or survival kits or whatever it was I was reviewing that I gave enough information to the reader that 20 years later, they can still read those articles. The product may not be around, but the reasons for why it was rated highly and some others were rated lower are still valid. And so they're pretty much evergreen even if the products have disappeared um, because it was all about not just finding good products and, and separating the good from the bad, but also educating the reader so that they'd be able to do this. They'd understand the process, not just be given a, you know, this is the best and, and this sucks. And there, there's very little of that. If you, you know, there's all kinds of sites that rate gear right now, mm -hmm. but, but, Basically, you're saying, okay, I trust this person who's writing this article and I'm taking his ratings at face value without the depth oftentimes that allows them to understand why something's better than the other. Um, I, and that I was really about, important. And as you note, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. It, it really was. And what I liked about your site uh, compared to some of the other things that are out there now. And it's it, still there, just to be clear to everyone. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I'm not doing much with it, but Equipped to Survive at Equip.org is still there. 
Yeah, I love it. I, I still bring that up in courses. I tell people whenever I'm explaining survival kits, I'm like, it's still a fantastic, fantastic resource. Um, I know it's fantastic because I've seen other people rip off your ideas and claim that they're yours. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, I disagree. I've met the man who came up with that. And I went through a period of my life where I would just call people out, you know, online. And I thought it was so much fun on discussion boards when I would get people angry at me, you know, and it was just, that was a little bit me more immature than I am now. Um, but in any case, I loved your site and I still do because you're very, very, uh, objective about everything that you, you bring up. And in the modern world, like in where we are today with, with all these companies that are reviewing gear many times, and, and I'm guilty of this too, as a writer, you don't get the disclosure of, Hey, this was given to me. I purchased this at a discount. I had to pay for this. Um, and you can tell that, especially with magazines, there are certain companies that appear in certain magazines over and over and over because they're advertisers, you know, and, you know, even like with this podcast, right? Like we're, you know, we're sponsored by SIG. I'll tell people, Hey, SIG's a great gun. Glock is a great gun. If you're a revolver guy, check out Smith and Western or Ruger, you know, like, but we like to disclose like, Hey, these are the people who are, you know, our friends who are helping us. Um, but you were doing this so long ago. And there were a lot of people today that, uh, as I mentioned, they don't give credit to you, but I think it needs to be done because the ideas are still relevant. And as you said, even if you can't find something like the photon light, maybe there's something better that's out there. The concept is there and those concepts are timeless, which is so, so important. Um, thank you. But what I loved, what I loved about your site is even when you had all of this information, this great solid information about survival gear, different survival kits, everything from that mini kit to the belt kit, to the person kit, to the aviation kit, you also were not above taking jabs at the community. And I loved the April fool's edition of your newsletter. <laughs> Those were a lot of fun. And I, don't, I don't know if you still have them somewhere on the site, but that was some of the the funniest stuff because people actually believed it. Uh, yep. Do you yep. remember any of the April Fool stuff that you threw out there? Um, you know, at, at my advanced age, I'm I'm lucky <laughs> if I remember what I had for breakfast by the time dinner rolls around. Uh, you know, I remember them being a lot of fun, and we also did it on the aviation side with Avweb, um, basically following in the footsteps of what I had done at Equipsis Five. But yeah, some they're they're floating around somewhere. Nothing has ever gone on the, on the internet. That's right. So parents, if you're listening, tell your kids, don't post up those selfies if they don't want them to be revisited 20 years down the line. Um, there you go. So now you've been involved in the outdoors community for a long time. As, as I mentioned, you uh, and I, we met at Terrell's property. And I remember Terrell featured one of your early knife designs. And I, I, I distinctively recall it was a picture of a smallmouth bass that he had caught in his pond with one of your fixed blade knives. And I was smiling because I was like, I fished in that same pond and I've caught smallmouth bass there. And I carried, I carried one of your, your knives for a long time. One of my buddies, Lieutenant Mike, he's actually one of our fieldcraft uh, assistant instructors. He carried one of your knives for so long. He just recently replaced it with the updated version uh, to the point where he carried it so long and sharpened it so many times he put, did a side-by-side uh, image of the blades and his blade was significantly shorter in terms of height from the spine to the edge. Cause he sharpened it so many times. Um, but you got into knife making because you were like, well, I I'm carrying these high end knives, but I want something affordable and something durable. And can we talk a little bit about your, uh, MK one, your M three and your M five that, that Hogue is currently sure. done. 
Sure. So, so first of all, just to be clear, the MK is is pronounced Mark. It's oh, I'm sort sorry. For Mark, um, sort of have to have a military background or a British car background to get that. But you know, um, so you're right. I developed my line of knives, my RSK line of knives, which stands for Ritter Survival Knife, um, as a result of there always being a but at the end of any recommendation I was giving someone for a knife. People would ask me, well, what knife should I use for survival? What knife should I carry every day? Um, and this was way before the term everyday carry existed. And I would say, well, you can carry this knife, but you can carry that knife. But there was always a but at the end of it. The knives I liked best were very expensive. Um, the less expensive knives always had uh, downsides, whether it was the quality of steel, the type of lock, the fact that they didn't have a lanyard hole. There, there was always a butt at the end. And I, I wanted to produce a knife that didn't have a butt at the end, which sounds really weird when you, you listen to yourself <laughs> say that. Um, and uh, I had been friends with uh, Les Asis at... Uh, Benchmade for years and years and years at that point. And I made suggestions of knives that they could make for me or make for them that, that, and eventually what it boiled down to was I wanted to take one of Mel Pardue's griptilian handles and put what was then a very high end steel uh, CPMS 30V and my blade tape, which, um, it's very, very similar to what uh, the blade shape in my Sabenza from Chris Reeve. And I bugged less and I bugged less and I bugged less. And it's like, nobody is going to buy a high-end blade steel in an inexpensive plastic handle. Said, but it's a really good inexpensive plastic handle. Um, and eventually he said, look, if, if, if you want to buy a couple hundred of these knives i'll build them for you and you can sell them and i found a partner and we did that and it turned out to be quite successful um and started a trend because nowadays you can find high-end blade steels in relatively inexpensive material handles all over the place um and eventually i transitioned to hogue making my next generation my generation two knives um but they're you know, they, it's the same basic concept, a tremendous amount of value for what you're getting, uh, which was the whole idea that, that you here you could have a knife with really, really good steel and a really ergonomic handle and a really strong lock. And yeah, it's going to cost more than 20 bucks, but it's also not going to cost 400 bucks. And it's going to be a knife, as our trademark saying, that you can bet your life on. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever want to put anything out that I wouldn't want to bet my life on and I wouldn't want someone else to bet their life on. Yeah, I'm actually holding holding that knife right now. I uh, I, I I picked one up um, and I brought it down to the sawmill, which is one of the first places I ever taught for Fieldcraft. And on the first day that I was there, I wasn't used to carrying this knife because I was carrying other ones in other places, fixed blades. So uh, I had it in my pocket and embarrassingly enough, I thought I lost it. 
and I mentioned it to the director and I mentioned it to everyone. I'm like, guys, I think I lost a knife. And at the end of the day, I looked in the back pocket of my, my 511 jeans that have like a spare pocket back there. And I had the damn thing clipped there. And I didn't want to tell anyone that I had it on me the whole damn time. But, uh, but I was actually really, really upset because I was like, I used that knife during that, the course that I taught down there, we were carving and I'm, I was using it aggressively and I'm like, it was holding up great. And then I had all that experience with it only to lose it. But in reality, I was just the dumbass that ended up leaving that thing in my back pocket. So true story. If you guys were at that course, that's where it was the whole time. Um, no, that's funny. No, for, for those guys that wanted the fixed blades, you came up with the Mark three, right? That's the, the, yep. the full tank. And that, that's basically my Mark one grown into a fixed blade. Uh, four and a half inch blade instead of three and a half, uh, obviously a little bit longer handle, but you know, the basic, the things that make the Mark one so good and ergonomic and point so well and easy to use are just made a little bigger into the fixed blade. Um, and it works. Um, honestly, uh, we don't sell anywhere near as many fixed blades as we sell folders. Um, some people look at it and go, that, that's a, that's a weird looking knife. Um, but when they get in their hands, like we were just at blade show Texas and, and we sold a bunch of them because once someone puts it in their hands and, you know, it starts moving around and going like, Oh man, this, this really works. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point of a knife. Um, so if anyone wants to, understand what we're talking about uh, my knives my rsk knives with the exception of the the mark 5 are exclusively available from knifeworks.com uh they're my partner in it it's a little bit different way to do it but uh the knives are currently made by hogue who are doing an incredible job uh g10 handles uh, machine g titan handles uh Able lock, which is a refinement on the axis lock, which Patton ran out of in 2016, um, and uh, CPM 20 CV uh, blade steel, which is the U.S. equivalent of uh, M390, Oler's M390. Um, and they're, they're in incredible value, I think. Um, be hard-pressed to, to find that kind of knife for the kind of prices that we charge for them. Yeah, I completely agree on that one. And yeah. the little Mark V, I think, is the most unique out of out of all three. Uh, because one of the questions that comes up in the survival class is, is, well, I can't carry a knife on me every single day. I hear that all the time, right? People say, well, I can't carry it because they're too bulky, you know? And usually it's smaller statured people, men and women, uh, or they say like, oh, a lot of the knives are too big or a lot of that. Like there's always an excuse, kind of like your knife design. Well, I can, but, and one of the things that comes up is, well, what about a backup knife? What about like, if you need like a really, really small knife, you're hiking, you just want to carry something to open up packages of food on the trail or, or whatever it is. And I'm like, trust me, there are small, like uh, credit card size knives. And they're like, what do you mean credit card? And I'm like, it literally fits inside the dimensions of a credit card or an Altoids tin. And your Mark V is one of those. Um, and can you guys kind of go through the process sure. of designing that one? So, so we have a forum on the Equip to Survive site, and one of the participants in the forum was looking around for a for for something to fit his own Altoids tin kit that was patterned somewhat on on my kit, and 
he couldn't find the knife he wanted. And sort of in the same time frame, we had been talking with Adventure Medical Kits about uh, doing an expanded uh, uh, pocket survival pack that would include a knife and some other stuff. Um, and so I needed a knife for it. And so this gentleman who was on the forum had David White, who was at the time a very young knife maker, um, starting out, uh, design him a knife that would fit in an Altoid tin. And it was really interesting, brought it to Blade Show. Uh, we had a meeting. I said, well, this is a really nice knife in concept. The execution leaves something to be desired. It was too heavy and anyway. I said, I think we can do something with this. And I went to CRKT at the time and said, this is what I propose. We take this basic concept and we end up with this really nice, very useful knife that'll fit in an Altoids tin. Um, and that's exactly what happened. That's how the, the, the RSK Mark V came from. And so it's a little knife, weighs a ounce and a half, um, little sheath. You can hang it from your neck. It fits inside an Altoids tin. Um, it's got a, a, a little lanyard that you can adjust the length to so that the lanyard sort of extends the handle when you have it in a grip. Um, and it will, I mean, I have taken down two inch saplings with it. Mm -hmm. It takes a while, um, but it is perfectly capable of getting the job done in most circumstances. And that's what we were after. And it's inexpensive. I mean, list price today is like $15 uh, and you can find it at almost any, uh, good knife retailer. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's inexpensive Chinese stainless steel. It's not going to hold an edge forever. Uh, though it's pretty easy to, to sharpen, you can sharpen it on a stone. Um, but it's adequate for the job. And a lot of people are enjoying it. I mean, uh, Blue Ridge knives, who's the world's largest knife distributor, uh, after CRKT, uh, dropped it, um, said, we want to, we we sell enough of these we would like to continue selling them and they went to the same factory that had produced the original one for crkt and so they're now producing it for blue ridge and it's half the cost even so <laughs> even yeah. better i tell people with that type of knife like it's better than using a hardback razor it's better than getting a scalpel blade and pinching that oh, scalpel yeah. blade between your hands because you can always take a small piece of paracord or or uh, rawhide or whatever type of cordage you have and you can make like a handle extension for it and by putting the loop of that cordage through your pinky or ring finger and then pushing forward with your index and and thumb you actually it'll feel like a much larger handle and you'll be able to get some actual work done with it um yeah so. and that's that's the reason it comes with the lighter you can do it with the pinky finger or you can just put the big knot at the end of your fist either way you've effectively extended the length of the handle. And that's the biggest problem with small knives is gripping them. Um, if you can't get three fingers on there, it's really hard to control what you do. And it gets tiring very, very fast mm -hmm. as I'm sure you've discovered. Um, so that was the design philosophy for the Mark five. And it, it, it's cool to design knives. It's cooler to design knives who continue to be popular for years and years and years because 
you manage to get lucky and put it all together in the right way. Yeah. And find people who will make it and make it right. I mean, the folders that we're doing in the Mark III uh, are incredible knives that Hogue is just killing it for me. I mean, they are, they're just putting out some incredible quality. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, I know we discussed a, a few things before the podcast, something that I completely forgot. I have a handful of questions here from listeners. And before we had to reschedule this podcast, I had put out on Instagram saying, hey, I've got Doug Ritter coming on or an industry legend coming on. Uh, do you have any questions? And I received a handful of them. So if you don't mind, I've got some questions from listeners that you could sure. field. And they don't have to be the longest answers, but I figured you'd enjoy this. So here we go. Question number one, uh, there's six of them, uh, or I should say there's five of them from CB Innova. In your opinion, what is the most underrated piece of kit and the most overrated piece of kit? Wow. <laughs> I should have told um, you that they're not easy questions, but I think they are. But So I think the most underrated piece of kit is probably a pair of gloves. Okay. Because... Most of us, if we have calluses on our hands, they're on our fingertips. We, by and large, do not use our hands for rough labor. Mm -hmm. And if you find yourself in some sort of survival circumstance, you will be willing to pay gold for those gloves. It makes all the difference in the world. It's why all my larger kits all have gloves in them. Because, I mean... I'm sure you've been there as well. You take someone out in the wilderness, go gather some wood for a fire, go do this, go do that. You know, they're looking at their hands because mm -hmm. they're not used to using them this way. And if they haven't put gloves on, they're starting to get raw or get a blister or get a cut uh, and certainly don't need cuts out in the wilderness. Or... So, yeah, I think gloves are probably the most underrated piece of survival gear that folks should carry more often than they do. And now the follow-up, the overrated? <sighs> overrated. Boy, that is <laughs> hard. That is really, really hard. I would say, okay, overrated fishing kits. Okay. All right. Um, in my kits, I call them entertainment packs <laughs> because honest God, you don't need to fish. You are not going to survive or not survive because you catch a fish or use the fishing kit to in a trap line and catch a small rodent or something like that. We don't need food that badly. But one thing we need to do when we're out in the wilderness is not do stupid things because, okay, I got nothing to do. I'm going to go do something stupid. Okay. Take your fishing kit and go fish or set some traps or do whatever you want to do and keep yourself occupied. And that's why I call them entertainment kits. So that would be my answer. All right. Question number two from Vankis John 26. When it comes to a survival knife, is it better to have serrated or not? And why? Not serrated for two reasons. One is um, if you have to sharpen it uh, and you don't have the tools, you can always sharpen a straight edge, a fine edge, whatever you want to call it. Uh, serrated, good luck. Now, serrated may cut longer because it's basically a saw with sharper edges. But um, if you want to do fine work, 
you can't do fine weight work with a serrated edge. And the ones I hate worse are, you know, the half serrated, half fine edge. Just not a big fan. I carry a serrated edge if I'm out on the water and I know I'm going to be cutting line, which is really good at. But the fact of the matter is if you keep your knife sharp, there's almost nothing you can't cut with a fine edge that a serrated edge is going to cut quicker. Okay. Third question from somewhere.montana. What's his minimum he carries in pocket everyday carry? Real world, nobody carries a backpack with gear on quick hikes. <laughs> so. so so you're 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 you got two different subjects here. Right. You got everyday carry and now you're talking about hiking. Okay. Two very, very different environments. When I go out of the house, I have typically two knives. Um, my, my standard full-size RSK Mark one G2 and my mini RSK Mark one G2 for the very simple reason that I invariably meet, meet people who want to see both, um, <laughs> didn't used to carry two knives, but now <laughs> that I'm selling knives, I carry both. Um, I typically have, uh, a Leatherman tool, uh, either my charge or I have a very small Swiss army knife in my watch pocket. Just comes in handy little screwdrivers scissors whatever um i have uh, a flashlight um these days i'm either carrying my surefire uh frankenlight which you can read about at the equip to survive site or i'm carrying my little olight um uh what model is this uh 1r2 eos which is a little rechargeable light uh puts out about 100 10 or 120 lumens on high. Um, I've got uh, a cut down Fox mini whistle. Uh, I've got a mini Sharpie, uh, which I have to carry because you can't write on my business cards with a regular, uh, with, with a regular pen. Um, I've got uh, uh, a spuds uh, eyeglass cleaner or scope cleaner uh, little pouch. Um, and I've got a, a mini USB, uh, and these are all on a, on a keychain mm -hmm. in my pocket. Um, let's see what else. That's sort of my basic everyday carry. Um, if I'm going on a hike, I'm not going on a hike with anything less than a fanny pack worth of equipment, including medical gear and survival gear. I can't tell you the number of times that me having met the right medical gear has helped somebody else. Not me, mm -hmm. but you go hiking, you know, at least in the, in the areas around where I live, it seems invariably you're going to run into somebody sitting by the side of the road, either got cactus in their hands or their foot, or they got, you know, they fell and hurt something. Um, so for me, everyday carry is, what do you carry when you go out to shop for groceries versus what do you carry when you're hiking? Hold different ball games. All right. Long um, answer to short question. No, no, it's good. Uh, another question. This is from uh, Joshua Carter. It's very similar to that first question. And I think I already have the answer, which is the entertainment pack. What's the most useless item you see in other survival kits. Um, but this next question We'll, we'll finish up with this one for the 
listener submitted questions. I love this one and I saved the best one for last. This one is from Wilderness Woodcraft. My buddy, Brian, if you were in a survival situation with no expectation of near term rescue and you had 10,000 calories of survival food, how would you ration it? Higher calorie count to maintain energy to accomplish priorities or minimal calories to spread it out? So that's an interesting question because I don't believe I would ever find myself in that circumstance. Okay. Because I don't go out, I don't fly, and I don't do anything like that without carrying a PLB or some other similar satellite stress alerting thing. And that almost guarantees that you're not going to spend more than one night out in the in the wilderness. But pretending like I didn't have that and I didn't tell anybody I was going out, so nobody was going to come looking to me. In other words, I'm being a real dumbass. <laughs> um, I think that your number one survival tool is your brain, right? Spot. We can all agree on that. Mm-hmm. If your brain isn't operating at full strength, you're going to do stupid things. And that requires one, water which is much more important than food. And if you have food, food that will feed your brain. So I'm going to eat enough to keep myself going. Um, I typically take fairly high caloric bars when I am going out for a day hike or something like that, which is where theoretically you might find yourself stranded. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm backpacking, which I don't do these days because my back isn't capable of packing much, um, one of the foibles of, of growing older, um, I'm carrying real food and, you know, that sort of stuff. But, you know, I, I live on fairly high protein, pretty decent calorie count, uh, bars or snacks. And I think the same thing sees you through any sort of survival situation you're in. I love it. Does that make sense? Makes sense. All right. So now that concludes the, uh, listener submitted questions. Um, what I really, really wanted to talk to you about, and this is, I think what I, the listeners are going to find the most interesting. And especially if they travel to places where they might be reluctant to carry certain everyday carry items, is your current, I mean, it's a passion project. You're the chairman of Knife Rights, which people ask me, they're like, well, what is Knife Rights? And I say to them, I'm like, think of it like a legislative arm, right? That is protecting your ability to carry one of the most important tools you have, which is a knife. Um, And I said, think about all the rules that are out there and realize that there are people out there that are trying to correct the wrongs that these politicians are putting in place that are just not grounded in logic and trying to educate people with, Hey, that's not exactly what you think it is. This is the reality. Here's what you should do. Here's how you stay better informed and so forth. So I always tell people knife rights is looking out for you, but can you kind of give just like a a synopsis of like what the company's mission or what your organization's mission is and some of the things that you do? So, so the easiest way for most people to understand knife rights is that we are the NRA for the knife community, for the knife owners. Um, 
we are, I mean, my annual budget probably wouldn't keep the lights on at NRA for a month, but we do the same thing. We are going out, getting rid of bad knife laws, of which there are a lot, and working to make sure that legislators don't pass more bad knife laws. Um, sometimes, mostly it's through our legislative efforts, where since 2010, we have helped enact uh, 36 bills repealing knife bans in 25 states and over 150 cities and towns. Um, but sometimes it's through litigation. Uh, where, for example, uh, we sued we we sued the city of New York, and spent nine and a half years in federal court, uh, two appeals, and an appeal to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, on the legislative side, we're trying to fix the problem legislatively. Bill is bill passed the Democratic-controlled New York legislature legislature twice, vetoed by. Uh, Governor Como twice, and then with our lawsuit up for conference at the Supreme Court in two weeks, uh, he signed our bill the third time rather than have us go to the Supreme Court and probably win. Um, you know, different different ways of of dealing with the problems depending upon how bad it was in New York City. Uh, over the course of a decade, over 70,000 people were arrested and prosecuted for carrying a common lock blade pocket knife. Yeah, New York is, um, a, is a nightmare. I mean, I grew up in Connecticut and we would take trips into New York and I had buddies that were there and they were like, yeah, be very careful. Like, don't even let them see the clip that's in your pocket because you'll get. You know, so yeah, so the, the problem is compounded in New York, aside from this uh, ridiculous uh, assertion that all these lock blade knives were gra were illegal gravity knives. Mm -hmm. New York is the only city in the country that requires you carry your knife completely concealed, and a clip is not completely concealed. Okay, so you've got a has to be under four inches, and it has to be completely concealed. When I would go to New York, carry a knife, it would be a non locking blade because that was part of the definition of a gravity knife. And I would take the clip off the knife because we are so used to clip, you know, putting the mm -hmm. knife back in our pocket clipped that I knew that I would just do that unconsciously. And I, I did not need to be arrested in New York City for carrying a non-concealed knife, uh, even if it wasn't a gravity knife under those stupid rules. Um, but that's... That's the kind of craziness that is out there. Now, we have a Knife Rights has an app called Legal Blade, one word, um, that has the knife laws of all 50 states, about 40 of the major cities, and links to where you can find the city and county codes for pretty much anywhere in the U.S. Um, if you're traveling and you're and you don't really know what the laws are, and many people who even live in areas don't know what the knife laws are, this free app could save your bacon because the problem isn't a problem until it becomes a problem. And I have this conversation with folks all the time. Well, I do this and I carry this and I, it's like, great. And that all works great until you get a traffic stop and you get out of your car and 
the law enforcement officer is having a bad day or whatever, and suddenly it's a problem. You know, our solution to that is twofold. Educate people so they know what's legal and not. And two, just get rid of the damn laws. They're all irrational, stupid, and do nothing to stop crime. Yeah. Do you think we're ever going to get to the point of like the the nonsense and the craziness that they have over in Great Britain with like the uh, amnesty boxes? That my favorite thing, by the way, is when those boxes get stolen. I love that. Um, I think it's funny that you know here, here's the government saying, "Oh, we're going to you know prevent crime by letting people turn in their knives," and then someone steals all the knives. Well. So, so, so there's a couple. So one is if I have any say in the matter, no, we're not going to get to be like Great Britain and, and, and knives because they're, they're absolutely nuts off the wall. Um, they have a true problem with what they call uh, knife crime, mm-hmm. which are crimes perpetrated by folks carrying knives. Um, the knives don't do the crime the people do. Let's not forget that. Um, and it it's a societal issue. It's not because of the knives, it's because of the society. Um, I don't think we're going to see that over here. One of the reasons I started Knife Rights was I used to travel to England on occasion, mm-hmm. and I saw what they were, what was going on. It's like, okay, we don't, we don't need that happening here. We don't need people suggesting that uh, there should be no pointed knives. Um, and so all your chef knives are going to have rounded ends on them. Because the fact of the matter is the vast majority of assaults committed with a knife are committed by kitchen knives in the kitchen. Hmm. Not switchblades, not assisted openers, not daggers, not dirks, not bowie knives. Kitchen knives. Yeah, you talk to a lot of the cops out there and they'll tell you that they'll find a lot of victims that have the kitchen knife in their back with the handle broken off and just a little stick tang sticking out of the out of their shoulder or whatever it may be Um, because they're they're dirt cheap, you know. And everybody has one. Yeah. Um, what do you suggest people do? Uh, I know Knife Rights has an acronym, SAC. Can you kind of run us through, like, if you are getting hemmed up uh, by law enforcement for carrying a knife, they see something on your belt, they see something in your pocket, they see it in your car, wherever it may be. I mean, there's. it seems like that acronym, SAC, has actions that are universally applied to kind of like dealing with law enforcement to make sure that you have a better outcome than if you just kind of threw caution to the wind. So, so first of all, what I'm going to discuss briefly is discussed at greater length and in greater detail, uh, on both articles on the knife rights website and Mm -hmm. on links from the legal blade app. And this is a result of collaboration with Evan Knappen, who is probably the leading knife law attorney in the country. And he uses the acronym SAC, which some of us are older, old enough to remember when that meant Strategic Air Command. Um, and, it's, and it's very, very simple. S means remain silent. I assert the right to remain silent. Do not talk to the law enforcement officer. A. Ask for your attorney to say, I want to speak to my or an attorney. Okay. And then third, the, the C is do not consent to any search. 
So do not consent to any search. Don't make or sign any statement without your attorney's approval, with the exception of if you're getting a traffic ticket, you got to sign the traffic ticket. But always remain respectful, polite, and cooperative, and never physically resist. If you do all that, you make your attorney's job a lot easier. When you start trying to talk a cop out of a ticket or an arrest or that sort of thing, it never goes well, and you make your attorney's job a lot harder. Everyone says, well, I'm never going to have to worry about that. Well, you don't until you do. Um, Back of our membership cards have SAC on it because we want people to understand how important that is. You have a right to remain silent. You have a right to ask for your attorney. Okay. These are fundamental rights that are part of our Bill of Rights. And if you fail to take advantage of it, then the consequences can be dire. I, I don't know any other way to put that. And for those who are carrying a knife or for that matter, a firearm or have a, Uh, some means of self-defense at home. Please consider becoming part of a insurance program that will protect you. Uh, Anybody, we we have partnered with U.S. Law Shield. We get a a small uh, amount when someone signs up. Um, We partnered with them because at the time they were the only one of these organizations like USCCA and U.S. Law Shield and others that would cover any defensive means, whether it was your fists or a knife, important to us, or a firearm or a baseball bat or whatever you use to defend yourself. As long as it's a legitimate defense, you're good. It, It does you and your family no good to successfully defend your life with whatever tool you've decided to use and then see yourself go bankrupt or end up with lousy uh, legal legal representation because the cost to defend yourself is so huge these days. I I think there's a problem overall in like the self-defense community. A lot of people are learning these really, really cool drills, right? They're learning how to, how to take their pistol, take their rifle, shotgun, take their knives, and they're learning how to protect themselves or protect their loved ones, you know, the people they care about. But there are so many instructors that don't go into the detail of second and third order effects. It's like, okay, great. You just defended your family. Fantastic. You did exactly what you're supposed to do. Kudos to you. Do you have a plan for when the lawyers show up? Well, I just successfully defended my family. Well, that's not what I asked you when the lawyers show up. And if you're not no, when thinking the cop, what you're talking about is when the law enforcement shows up. Correct. Right. And, when the cops and, show up and, and then the lawyers. <laughs> yeah. But but so so we we also, you know, once we started working with U.S. Law Shield, mm-hmm. we put together what I think is one of the best articles on what to do and what to do after you're involved in some self-defense issue yeah it's called the aftermath of self-defense it's also on the the our uh knife website it's also on the legal blade uh, app and it and it goes step by step by step what to do what to not do what to not say again remain silent um and it steps you through things and all of that is to the good 
But ultimately, if you don't have some sort of insurance plan and you get a prosecutor who doesn't think like you do, who thinks you really have no right to self-defense, then you can go broke defending yourself. What's the average, Doug? Like, what are people paying in your experience? What are they paying if they get caught with a knife or use a knife or whatever? It is not unusual for the legal bills in a self-defense case to exceed six figures. Damn. Okay. Or you end up with a public defender, a few of which are really, really good. Many of them have, you know, their heart in the right place, but it ain't the same as hiring really competent legal uh, folks who know exactly what they're doing in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. It just isn't the same. And again, you get a prosecutor who is just thinks differently than we do. And they, you know, you're talking about not just the original case, you're talking about appeal after appeal. It, it will ruin your life if you don't have good legal counsel. Man. I, you know, I hate talking about this because it's, you know, okay, let's talk about the good stuff that, that happens. But if you're going to carry a knife for self-defense, if you're going to carry a firearm for self-defense, if you're keeping a firearm or a knife at home for self-defense, okay, you need to think about what happens after you successfully defend your life or defend your family's life. Wow. Now, what about for the person that is innocent and they're just carrying the knife? Or, well, I, I should be very careful with that word innocent, right? Like they're, they're, they have good intentions they get bound up because something was seen, right? Like, oh, your knife is 4.25 inches instead of four. Or in my home state of Connecticut, the law is written, I believe, uh, four inches and over is illegal, um, to paraphrase. And a lot of people think, oh, I'm good with a four inch knife. And it's like, no, 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 four inches and over, not over four inches. It's in the wording. Like what, like we talked about this before, uh, before we jumped on, on this call, like what, what are some of the examples of like, you would not believe what happened? Like, do you have a couple that the listeners might like take away and, and say, wow, I need to address the way that I carry, address the way that I'm preparing from, for the worst case scenario? Well, yeah, I do. Um, one of the most egregious um, occurred in Michigan a number of years back, uh, a young man was carrying a perfectly legal hunting knife, legal length, legal to carry, um, was out playing with his friends, somehow attracted the attention of the local sheriff. Um, and the sheriff took the knife, ended up charging him as a, as a juvenile for an illegal knife. There's absolutely no basis, no basis whatsoever for him to have been charged. I mean, Young man, he's 16 years old, good kid, uh, honor student, okay? It cost his father almost $30,000 before this was all said and done. Wow. Okay? Um, This is the kind of really bad stuff that can happen when you run into a circumstance where Law enforcement isn't at the level that we would prefer them to be. Um, Every one of those prosecutions in New York City 
um, was technically unconstitutional, but it took us nine and a half years and almost a million dollars between legislation and, and litigation to solve that problem. Um, it takes, it takes, our budget may be small compared to larger organizations, but it takes money to get this kind of stuff fixed, whether it's going into court to protect someone, to protect a group's civil rights. We don't do individual uh, legal protection, or if it's getting legislation changed. We get legislation done, and we've been very successful at it because we show up. Uh, but that costs a lot. Um, we're getting up close to in about a month uh five weeks we will launch our annual ultimate steel spectacular which by the way will include one of your sponsors uh sigs we'll have a number of sig firearms on there um, they just committed to uh a, a cross rifle uh a uh MC, mcx cane break and they're you know incredibly popular new p322 a 22 long rifle pistol. Um, and that's just, those are just a few of some really cool prizes that we have. Uh, typically around 200, $225,000 worth of prizes. You know, if people will go to knife sign up for our newsletter, uh, participate in the ultimate steel where they can win some incredible prizes. Um, that gives us what we need to continue to do what we do and forge a sharper future for all Americans. What's the, the greatest, I know you have a lot of different, uh, uh, laws that you're attacking. You're going after, uh, ridiculous, um, you know, laws that are affecting us. What do you think is the greatest threat right now? Like the, the biggest target, so to speak, that we should be aware of. Uh, maybe it's specific to a, a state, like, where do you feel like this is where we need to spend the most attention? In terms of knife stuff yeah, or in yeah. terms of generally? Well, I mean, well, either or. It's up to you. Well, okay. So uh, w- without picking sides, I will just say elections matter. Mm-hmm. If you haven't figured it out by now, you're not paying attention. Uh, voting is really important. That is the absolute minimum that you can do. Get involved supporting candidates you believe in, whether that's helping them gain signatures to get on the ballot, whether that's going to rallies, whether that's going door to door and handing out pamphlets. Get involved. That's how that is. That is that is how you change things for the better. Big picture. Okay. Um from our perspective of knife stuff, like I just talked about, our success comes from showing up, showing up again, showing up again. Uh, we just got uh, we just got Virginia's switchblade ban, absolute one hundred percent switchblade ban, repealed. Okay, that was five and a half years. This is the third bill that passed. The first two bills were vetoed by two different governors okay and we just keep coming back and unfortunately that takes money Mm -hmm. um you cannot solve political problems and 
if it involves laws, it involves politics. You cannot solve them without supporting the people who are fighting against it. Whatever the issue is that you care about, there are organizations or or just political parties that are for or against what you believe in. Support the ones that are for what you believe in. Because if you don't, you really don't get to complain. Yeah, I believe that one. Uh, silence is almost acceptance. It, silence is acceptance. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's not almost. It is. Um, we, you know, my wife and I have gotten very involved politically as a result, partly of doing knife rights, doing legislation, discovering what politics and legislation is all about and deciding that we're going to make a difference. You know, I can't write a huge check. I don't have that kind of money. Uh, I wish I did, but my wife and I are both active in a number of campaigns for state and and U.S. office. Uh, And that's how we know that we've done all we can personally Mm -hmm. to make things better for ourselves and the next generation. And one of the things I love about what I do with knife rights is, you know, we're generally speaking, not offered the opportunity to make differences, make a difference for future generations. You know, we tend to be focused and work a job and we're doing something and it's great for us right now. But what we do at Knife Rights is going to make a difference for generations. And that's an incredible feeling. You don't get to do that a lot. Yeah. And I think of all the, all the people who you're helping through Knife Rights by preventing them from getting bound up for using tools to get into the great outdoors. And, you know, this might be a, and especially imagine like a person loses a knife that was in their family from grandfather to father to son, you know, like that type of thing drives me crazy. Um, Yeah. And we've seen that happen more times than I care to uh, think about where someone legally or illegally is carrying a knife and ends up being confiscated and they never see it again, or it's a, huge expensive tale to get in you know it was their grandfather's knife that was passed down to them from their father i mean these are cherished heirlooms law enforcement doesn't care about that right yeah i'll tell you i i appreciate what you do doug um you know i will always support what you do and uh i'll see you at blade show this year um is there anything that you want to kind of leave the listeners with before we sign off for, for this podcast couple things. One, uh, please take a look at my knives. Um, the sale of those knives, the income from the sale of those knives are what allow me to spend 95% of my time on knife rights. Um, and I think you will find them a good value for what they are and that you will enjoy them. Second, um, please sign up at knife rights for our new slice newsletter. It's free. We don't bombard you every day with stuff. We only send something when we have actually something useful to tell you about something that's going on or, uh, by doing that, you'll be the first one to know about our ultimate seal spectacular, which is coming up very beginning of May. Um, and we need your support in order to continue to do what we do and rewrite knife law here in America. 
Awesome. Well, Doug, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us on the podcast and, uh, Pleasure. Thank, and thanks to Sig and black rifle coffee again for, for making this possible guys. Uh, please check out Doug's work. Uh, you're not going to find a more genuine guy. That's really, really interested in making sure that you get out there and you're able to do what you need to do without, uh, you know, facing the consequences of the law. Um, and take a look at his gear because I carry it. I would not carry it if I didn't use it. And if I didn't swear by it and I will 100% throw hundred percent of my, uh, my recommendation behind his stuff. So guys, thanks so much for listening. I'm Kevin Estella with Peelcraft Survival.